Welcome everybody to this afternoon's special event here at the Apple Store Sydney. Would you please join me in welcoming our guests, Jeremy Sims, Michael Caton, and this afternoon's moderator, Gary Maddox from the Sydney Morning Herald. Hello everyone and welcome to what I think is going to be a really fascinating hour. Jeremy Sims, we know, of course, is a very accomplished actor. He was in the opening night film at the festival, Reuben Guthrie, playing this bastard of an advertising agency boss. He's also a well-known theatre director, and now he's directed his third film, Last Train to Frio, Beneath Hill 60, and Last, Last Cab to Darwin. Thank you. Michael Caton, of course, we all know and love for many years from television, dating back to The Sullivans, uh, Packed to the Rafters, of course... Daryl Kerrigan is a kind of an immortal role in Australian film, uh, and as well as many other tremendous performances. So please welcome Michael as well. Thanks, Gary. Now, Jeremy, we might go back to the start of this film. I believe it was a newspaper article that triggered the initial idea. What was it about the article that made you think there's a film in here? Um, well, it was, Reg, it was Reg Cribb, the writer, who's actually here at the moment, Reggie. Put your hand up. There's the man in the pork pie hat. Um, Reg, Reggie and I have worked together making theatre for a, a long time at that point. Reg was a founding member of my theatre company. And we were looking at the time. We'd, we'd done a little play called The Return together, which turned out to be Last Train to Frio. Um, and we were on the lookout for, for something to spark us. And there was a little article on page sort of six or seven, I think, of the West Australian, um, saying uh, maybe it was the, was it the Herald um, saying well, it have to be the Sydney Morning cab, Herald, surely. Cab, yeah, <laughs> and nothing but the truth. Cab driver on death drive to Darwin was the headline, and um, there was this little potted story of Max Bell. Um, the thing for us was that we were looking at the time for a mythic structure to to put a story. Reg has always been interested in sort of the dying of old Australia. In, he grew up in country towns. Um, I'm interested in Aboriginal politics and issues to some degree. Uh, we love the outback and we just everything coalesced around this story. And for us, it's not a true story because the story of Rex is the story of what happens on this Odyssean adventure. And of course, we knew nothing of what happened to the real Max Bell and we never will. But in our version, he gets in a cab and he meets Tilly and he meets Julie and he goes through Nadatta and all these things happen. Um, so, yeah, it was about finding a structure to write a story to. And then we, we developed it as a play for nine years in conjunction with the Sydney Opera House. And then Jackie Weaver was in the original production, toured all around the country. And then we, we left it alone for five years. And then we came back to it as a film script and reimagined it. How much difference is the film to the play? It's, it's hugely different. 
Um, the play is a sort of great big ramble, rambling, surreal. There's songs in the play. There's a Tidy Town song in five-part harmony. There's dream sequences. There's, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a crazy world. And it was re- the original production was three and a half hours long with two intervals. So um, the film is far more linear and far more structured than the play ever was. Okay. What stage did you come into it, Michael? Oh, what? How many years ago at the Dundalk Film Festival? Six, five, five years ago. Yeah, yeah. And Jeremy uh, sort of asked me up to to read, and we had some great people who gave us a hand at the reading. You know, Susie Porter. Who else was there? Um, um, oh my God! Yeah. It was a while back. Yeah, um, Siggy Thornton was Siggy there. Siggy Thornton. Yeah, and uh, it was really uh, affecting because it, it was just a reading. Um, you weren't immune to it. And in the last scene, uh, I found myself crying at my own death scene, which was a bit embarrassing, really. There were 300 other people in the room all bawling their eyes out at the same time. (laughs) That's when we knew we might have a story that worked. So from that point, you were in? Oh, yes, we're in, uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, at my age, to have an offer to, uh, to play something like that, and someone to put their, their trust in a, in a 70-year-old. Uh, um, and now I grabbed it with both hands. Thank you very much. What's, uh, what's terrific about the story is it's essentially a film about death, but you made it about life. Um, that, that really was the aim of the game when, when we started. Um, the thing that intrigued me was that idea, and you find it a lot in when you speak to people who... Uh, interested in euthanasia, particularly, and people particularly that say that's how they want to end their life and they want to control it, a lot of people will say things like, well, there's nobody left. There's nobody else I need to worry about. It's just me. I can make a selfish decision. Um, And and most people that isn't true of. Most people there are people that they need to deal with, that they need to speak to, they need to respect their love of them in order to leave here. And that was the issue that really interested us from a um, emotional, for the heart of the film, was that idea that no one, no one is alone on this planet. And, and Rex, you know, his three friends love him. They just haven't worked out how to tell him that. He loves Polly. He loves Broken Hill. Um, there are so many things in him that he isn't ready to say goodbye to. And euthanasia in the right circumstances is, is in my opinion, an essential right. But... I didn't want to make a film that just blank, argued black and white for that. I wanted to make a film that argued that if we do go down this path, we need to acknowledge that um, not having dealt with the love that we have and that other people have for us, is, is, um, then it's never going to be an easy journey. See, the, the thing about uh, Rex is that he's, he's a very insular, guarded man who's never been out of Broken Hill. He's, never seen the ocean and 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 going on this drive to Darwin to to euthanize himself he actually discovers life outside the narrow confines of of what he's experienced in Broken Hill. Jeremy do you develop once you've cast Michael do you develop the character around him and his own charm as an actor and wit? In this, in this case, no. In this case, the character was pretty fully formed. We, we, there's, there's bits of my dad, there's bits of Reg's dad, there's a bunch of things. Barry Otto played the role in the original stage production, 
And between the company and, and us, we developed the character of Rex uh, to the point where we were pretty comfortable we knew who he was. The characters of Julie and Tilly developed a lot more, particularly in conjunction with the actors. But I have to say, probably Rex was pretty fully formed for, for, for Michael to inhabit. And, and as, as we said, you know, it was a stage play. So uh, the dialogue in a lot of instances had a real rhythm and poetry to it. And it was up to you to, to wrap yourself around the dialogue rather than to wrap the dialogue around, around yourself. And, and, and Jeremy was very uh, particular in, in, a, in a lot of things of what he wanted you and how that line would sound because it had all been worked out on stage. I'm not saying that the script stayed exactly the same, but it was there, the rhythm and the meter of the speeches were there. There are some terrific lines in it. I wonder what, is there a, a line or a, I know which is my favorite, is there one that's your favorite in terms of the character to get, to get a laugh? Oh yeah, 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 sort of uh, with the psychiatrist. I love that line. I, I won't ruin it for anyone though who hasn't seen the film. You absolutely nail that line, that's a very funny one. Uh, I'm claiming that as mine, Reg. Thank you. Um, the character that Jackie Weaver plays is a really interesting one. She's a, we know in real life, Philip Nitschke, a very strong-willed campaigner for euthanasia. How much did you want to reflect his character in her and how much did you want to separate her from him? Uh, it's very much the latter. Um, uh, we didn't, for obvious reasons, we didn't want this to be debated on that level of, oh, well, he's that and she's that and this, this correlates to that. It, it's not helpful from a storytelling point of view. Um, the thing we wanted to dramatise was that idea that, that people that have a cause, even a really noble cause, can often get caught up in the ends justifying the means. And euthanasia, probably more than any other subject on the planet, is not a subject where the ends can justify the means. The means are the ends. So um, it's just, it was getting Jackie understood it immediately, was to have a character, not a very likeable character, and, and was, wasn't meant to be, but hopefully someone that we understood at the end who, who realised that she, she had stopped thinking about her patient as an individual and started to think of him as the representative of a movement. Of, of something that she could do to make the world a better place. And, and that happens. My expectation before seeing the film was that it would be a film, because it's such a controversial subject, that it would be a film that would argue about the value of euthanasia. But clearly, as soon as we saw her, we saw two newspaper headlines. One said, playing God, the other said, angel of mercy. So you wanted to steer down the middle. It's my experience in, in engaging with the euthanasia debate is that everyone that thinks they have an opinion about, and everyone does, across the board, once they deal firsthand with death to someone close in their family, they still will have an opinion about euthanasia, but it will change. Because saying I'm pro-euthanasia doesn't mean anything. You can be pro the right of everyone to commit suicide whenever they like, at one end of the scale. You and I could you know, could be legally allowed to kill ourselves now because we feel like it. Or you could be just in favour of people that are terminally ill and dysfunction and have lost all control of their faculties, being allowed to have their machine turned off. Everything in between those two is a position that you can have and still be pro-euthanasia. So a lot of the time it's just, 
the fact that we don't deal with death at all well in our culture, that is what I kept coming back to all the time. I also you know, feel that euthanasia is a right, should be a right, but at the same time, that will to live is something else again, and, and someone uh, could be very pro-euthanasia, but when faced the with the reality of, of shutting their life down, might not go ahead with that. That will to live is, is paramount. I wonder if, Michael, immersing yourself in a character who's facing this final exit and having to go through these emotions, whether that changed your opinion of the issue at all? Well, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm 71. I'm in the straight. <laughs> I'm coming down the straight. And I know, I can see, it, you know, I can look back 15 years and, and I can look forward 15 years, but whether I'll get those 15 years, I have no idea. So it, it hasn't, uh, I am still uh, pro-euthanasia, but at the same time, um, things that have to be pretty grim uh, for me to, uh, to shut it out, you know, shut down life. Jeremy, the film is set in a kind of, in a very interesting version of Australia, an outback, very vibrant, colourful version of Australia. You don't shy away from racism, you don't shy away from issues facing Aboriginal people in the, the long grass, for example, uh, the character of Tilly and his struggle to appear in the world. What did you want to say about Indigenous Australia in the film? Um, the the nicest compliments I got after the screening last night were particularly from people that either were Indigenous or, or, or deal a lot with Indigenous people and issues. And they were so thrilled to see a film with two principal characters had many of the issues in their life that Indigenous people face, but the film wasn't about those issues. They were characters who wanted a better life. They wanted to be fulfilled. They wanted all those human things. And... And, and Polly and Tilly just, we empathise with them immediately because we go, yeah, you deserve. And, and you know, the, the Polly character, for those that haven't seen it, is an Aboriginal woman who just wants to live a quiet life on her own in a neat and tidy house. And you can meet plenty of Aboriginal people who, who although they love their family and they love, you know, it's a stereotype that Aboriginal people live in this huge happy family and there's cousins and you know what I mean it's 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 an image that isn't always true there's quite a few people that go you know what? I live in a flat on my own and I love it and so we wanted to create a character Polly who in her head doesn't want anything to do with her family and then the journey for her is to discover that she does and and that's not a common theme in in Aboriginal storytelling likewise the Tilly character you, you meet young, talented Aboriginal men all of the time, wasting their talent. It's a, it's a common theme. But it's not an interesting... If you just tell people that story, people go, yeah, I know that, but I don't want to know it. Whereas Tilly, you engage with as a human being and you like him. And then it matters to you whether he's going to succeed or not or going to do something with his talent. And um, Mark Colesmith's performance in this film is extraordinary and, and Reg's writing for him, in my opinion, is one of the highlights of the film, one of the things I'm most proud of. Yeah, it's terrific. And, I, and Ningali, uh, who, who plays my secret girlfriend in Broken Hill, is a force of nature. That first scene of Ningali's, you think, what have we got here? And then the, the scene turns on its head. And 
It's just, like, it's just a beautiful bit of writing. And, and the, to, to cap that all off, I would say that most people, most white people in, in Australia that don't have any interaction with Aboriginal people are missing out. It's a really, they have an extraordinary culture, they're wonderful people, and they have a worldview that's not ours. It isn't, it's not white. Um, but it's such an asset to this country to have it, and we don't, in my opinion, utilise that asset very well. Tell us, Michael, how you viewed that. Tell us, Michael, how you viewed that relationship. Your character lashes out at her at one stage, almost as though he wants to distance himself from her or get away from her. Or... Yeah, he, he, he does. He, I, I think he is actually trying to drive her away because he, he sort of knows her well enough that he thinks that she won't want to deal with what's coming. And, and, I, and I think that whole idea of his mates too... Uh, uh, sort of avoiding the subject, you know. You know, we're here to have a few beers, and let's not talk about your die, mate. No, don't be, don't be silly. Uh, and um, it's only when he starts reflecting back on that he starts to realise how important uh, she is to him, and uh, and then. His relationship with Tilly is really interesting too because he's very suspicious of him. But in the end, he sort of accepts Tilly uh, warts and all, you know. He forgives, yeah, and in some ways um, um, Emma becomes a sort of a surrogate daughter. It's... he he gets this other family on the road. And it, I might say, Michael's performance in watching him gain a family during the journey is one of the highlights of the film. It's done so subtly and so beautifully. There was that scene in the water which almost prefigures his death, which is very touching. I had a tear in my eye when I saw that one. Yeah, well, I had a tear in my eye when we did it. <laughs> very cold, is it? I had a really... I had a pinched nerve in my neck. Yeah. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, the, uh, our director... You Just know, stick him back in the water, we're shooting it again. <laughs> no, Michael, get in the water. And then he said, you don't look really relaxed. <laughs> you know, our director, he was a hard man, but cruel. Yeah. See those little uh, wooden racks you can get on the back of your taxi seat? I gather they're very good for uh, sawbacks. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, I didn't have to act pain a lot. Michael, by the way, did all of his own driving during the film. Uh, we, didn't, we, had a, we had a driver, like a, a, a driving double, who did zero driving, I think. <laughs> we didn't have a low loader, so the car did the, the trip, and, and I was in the back most of the time with the monitor and one of the six cameras mounted on the car, and, and Michael drove pretty much the whole way. It did have its moments when he put the camera right in front of me. Yeah. And... I can't see the road, Jeremy. Like, that's important. It's not important for making a movie. It's actually a fascinating parallel with uh, that other gentle little Australian road movie, Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> Both... Yeah, I bet you they wish they had our budget. <laughs> Both fascinating road movies because, without giving too much away, 
uh, they go to a destination and then they turn around and come back. <laughs> I, I, I was criticising Fury Road for exactly that reason. I got halfway through the sentence and went, oh yeah, that's my plot too. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. When, when exactly is your film set? Uh, we know that uh, euthanasia laws were in the mid-90s brought in, your film? 90, 1996 was that window. Okay. Um, to be perfectly frank with you, it is set nowhere. It's set somewhere in the recent past. Um, we simply couldn't afford to do a period piece. In 1996, you have to replace every vehicle on the road. Um, so we just didn't mention dates or times. And it's actually, I'm really glad we decided to do that because it doesn't place it as a historical document. Again, it, it allows the film to be once removed. It allows it to be a fable, which, it, which we want it to be. Now, it's hard enough making a film at the best of times. You added to the complexity by shooting it on the road. So maybe you can tell us some of the, your road stories. Horror stories? Or... The well, the uh, William Creek, if you might notice that there are a few flies. Uh, well, the record of William Creek is Jeremy swallowed six in one day, and I was runner-up with four. And the number of times that, that you're doing a scene and, and you're watching the sunset and you've got flies in your eyes, up your nose, in your mouth, but thank God the camera's behind. But so I've probably got insecticide poisoning. There's just so much uh, rid you can put, put on yourself, really. And I've sort of thought to myself, I want to have a, a little Winnebago, and I ended up with one of those Apollo things. And, um, and it was a nightmare, quite frankly. And, it, and I was quite lonely, because I was away uh, from people. But I think that really suited the film, that, that sort of isolation that I got a bit from... Uh, I, I think it living did too. in that too, you know, it, it 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 removed me from a lot of the cast, and and crew, and I think that helped. Apart from Reg, don't forget, who was there in the morning to clean out your toilet? Oh, good. Yep. Yeah. That's what writers do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. I, I I think I was interested. You know, Greg Duffy's got a a a degree in law and. Yeah, uh, and but he's also uh, got a degree in traffic stopping. Yep, they did the traffic stoppers course. The writer, the producers, and uh, they gained new skills on that. On they that were high vis the whole way with uh, traffic control. Greg loved it. I think Greg's still here somewhere. The producer, there he is. A little lollipop, sense of self-importance, power trip. Yeah, totally. Power trip. <laughs> Look, one of the. <laughs> One of the beauties of making films in Australia on a low budget is, is the community that you work with when you make a film. And, and in all seriousness, the trip made the film and the film made the trip. Um, we couldn't have done it without doing the trip. And a lot of people thought that perhaps we could be based in Broken Hill and, and make the towns around Broken Hill double for the places. But it wasn't until we really got on the road um, that we started to get a sense of the Odyssean nature of, of, yeah. um, of what Michael's character was doing. And because uh, of how we shot, it was mostly linear. I mean, we weren't jumping backwards and forwards in time because we were at a location and, and then we moved on to that next location, that next location. Some days we drive 
three or four hundred k's to the next location, but and um, I think that helped as well. It gave it yeah. just that that continuity of performance, and and it was in, in a lot of the time in film, you're, you're shooting backwards and forwards in time, and with this, to be able to shoot a film like that was a huge plus, I thought. It was. I mean, we had to shoot the last scene in the second week of shooting in Broken Hill, and that was tough to shoot that scene. Um, and, and I'm reminded many times from working on films where you are, a second morning you're shooting the scene where your character breaks down after, you know, two-thirds of the story at the crucial point in the third act, and you're going, I'm not ready, I have no idea who this person is yet. So from a filmmaking point of view, shooting in a linear fashion is a great, great bonus. Oh, that it could be always so. Wouldn't it be fantastic? So did you have a little fleet of vehicles that would travel along and stay in what caravans? We had 18 to 20 vehicles. Um, how many? Uh, 17 vehicles, occasionally. 35 crew, uh, 18 flat tyres, four broken windscreens, couple uh, of broken axles, uh, a few and, times. And broken back windscreens as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, re it was a really logistical, logistically it was massive. Um, but shooting-wise, it was tough because we couldn't have a bigger crew than that. We, we, you, even if you had the money, you wouldn't want to. It would have it been too hard to move. We wouldn't have been able to quickly finish a scene and move over here and do stuff. So we, we had an extraordinary crew who worked just unbelievably hard to make it work. And half the time, there wasn't enough accommodation, so people were sleeping in swags. Um, under the stars, really, it was... Uh... Out at Pussy Willow, people stayed the night there at Pussy Willow in their swags. That tree with the feral cats, does that really That's... exist? That's it. Uh, it, was, it was there in the mid-90s. It was there until 2007, and then the local station owners cut it down because they felt that people were coming onto their property to look at the, the Pussy Willow uh, and that William Creek was getting a bad name. And then the people in the pub were furious because that's, they did have postcards with Pussy Willow on it and it was one of the only reasons people stopped to get you know, something to eat and buy a postcard. So that scene is actually w almost word for word um, that what we were told by the barmaid at Pussy Willow in, 19, in 2001, I think. That's um, and, and also, though, the, the guy at William Creek decided to appropriate our prop. Oh yeah, they've got our tree now. <laughs> so, Pussy Willow is back. Slightly artificial, but back. As seen in the Australian film. So what do they have on their postcards now? Um, I think it's, it's all very much more upmarket and modern touristy now. Um, it's funny, on that road, in, in all seriousness, there are, to some degrees, black and white towns. Even now, even today, on the Udnadatta track, there are towns that are white and there are towns that are black. is a black town. William Creek's a white town. They're 300 k's apart. There are almost no Aboriginal people in William Creek and Udnadatta's probably 85, 90%. Um, and those that are white in Udnadatta either work with or service the black community. So for better or for the worse, that's the way that human beings have set themselves up out there. And the people of Udnadatta, in our experience, were the most cooperative, fantastic, amazing, loving people. We were there for three days. That, that's the entire town of Udnadatta running along the road and at the pub. And they were, they were there from dawn till dusk. Uh, their kids were there from dawn till dusk. We, we, um, Greg and, and Lisa, our producers, went and, and did some work at the school. Um, they came and, you know, we, we 
set up contacts with people for internships and things. They were just so magnificent, and it, you feel it in that scene in Udnadatta. I have such fond memories of being there. And, and Mark Cole Smith went there early and worked with the kids and worked with the guys who played the heavies in the film. And then uh, Emma Hamilton did the same thing at Daily Waters. She arrived there a week before and worked as a barmaid. So that by the time we got there, she had the skills. She could pour a beer with a good head on it. <laughs> Multi-talents, yeah. So tell us about uh, when you got to Darwin. Uh, did you sort of uh, tell us tell us about the experience of shooting it there? Luxury, luxury. <laughs> the Hilton. It were bloody luxury, weren't it? Uh, luxury. <laughs> it was extraordinary to get. It. Honestly, Darwin's not a big town, but after we'd been on the road for six weeks, and we got there. We went, wow, look at this place. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, it was actually tricky because when we got to Darwin, we started shooting out of order. Again, and we, yeah. had to, we had to do scenes, um, you know, front and behind where we were in the story, um, and that became tough. We were very lucky we were looked after by the Hilton in Darwin and who were sponsors on the film. Um, you know, by that point, we were so I tired. I noticed a lingering shot of the Hilton. A little slightly lingering, contractually I, I, lingering. I, wonder. <laughs> I just wondered, yeah. Um, it's not as bad as Brendan Cowell's Lexus um, <laughs> moments in Reuben Guthrie, but it's, it's not far removed. The Lexus Reuben Guthrie, the Reuben Lexus Guthrie. Presented by Lexus, yeah. My character says Lexus, 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 fucking Lexus. <laughs> uh, I wonder if at any stage during the film you did get any opposition from people who saw you making a film about euthanasia, that this was either a bad thing or that somehow they wanted to get some involved politically somehow? We, we expected more than we got, to be honest. Um, uh, Dr. Philip Nisky was not happy with the play when we toured around the country and came and saw it and let it be known that that was not um, the Max Bell that he remembered. And we said, we know that, we're not telling that story. And, and, um, but I actually thought there would, be, there would be more people concerned with what we were doing. Um, everyone that sees the film, I think, acknowledges that it's about that subject matter, but that it doesn't... It doesn't take a side that, enough for anyone to get angry, um, so, which we're really pleased with. Tell us about the title, uh, Last Train to Frio, your first film, Last Cab to Darwin. I, I really, I'm so hope I don't have to answer this question a lot because it's a really boring answer. We, we, just, <laughs> we, we just ended up with two plays with the same title. I hasten to add that Reg also wrote a play for Jackie Weaver called Ruby's Last Dollar. So it's Reg's issue, not mine. There must be a sequel, though. The end to the trilogy, somehow, does it involve... Plane? Last bus to Bondi, bus, we were saying yeah. last night. <laughs> Something, tram, yeah. Uh, tell us, Michael, you, you've had such sort of tremendous charm and humour in your roles. After the castle, uh, you became sort of iconic. That was such a terrific role. What, what did it mean for you? Uh, what, what do you mean? What, what? Uh, after the success you had in the castle and creating that character, what did it mean for you? Oh, there was a whole rejuvenation, you know. I always use the, the metaphor, I was like the, uh, the old dusty couch in the, in the corner, you know, and, and they gave me a bit of a vacuum and a shampoo and, and uh, the career sort of kicked off again. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd basically sort of come to the decision sort of 12 months before that that 
it was all over and done with, really. I'd started riding and, and trying to get on the other side of the camera, and then the castle happened, and, and I never had the time to go back and try and do that. Do people still come up to you and want to hear lines from that film? I suspect they do. No, they love saying the lines to you. <laughs> or advertising agencies try to pay you huge amounts of money to say them, which I say no. Even uh, when there's a Lexus involved? You're dreaming, mate. <laughs> I'm so easily bought. <laughs> What's it like for you, Jeremy, as an actor, to be directing films? What is it kind of bring you some different experience of acting? Um, yeah, it does. I, I think, I suspect, certainly where film and, and TV is concerned, I'm much happier directing than acting. I'm not particularly talented, I think, at at being able to be on a film set and just stay in character. I tend to watch what's going on and where they're laying the track and what time it is and what time we're shooting this till. And I st I'm a really annoying actor to work with in film and TV because I keep saying, yeah, but why don't we do this? And they're like, can you just sit in your chair and not have any opinions, please, and just turn up and be in character? And I watch someone, you know, like Sasha Haller or whatever, friends of mine, and they really do, they just, they are in character on set or or they're mucking around but they're certainly not thinking about the the fourth wall or the making of the film and I always found I was doing that. Theatre's very different, I love this being on stage because then you are director and actor at the same time in many ways. Um, but I love directing actors and I'm discovering that actors quite like being directed by me because I, I speak to them as an actor and sometimes that means just saying can you do it louder or faster or slower rather than five minutes of psychobabble to get them to do, do something a certain way. A lot of actors quite like to be directed simply. You did Mind you, I, uh, credit where credit is due, uh, uh, I don't think I could have had half the performance uh, without Jeremy, who sort of guided me through it, you know. He, he never needed to have a, a script on set because Jeremy knew all the lines. And, uh, no, he did a wonderful to job. To mouth them in front of the a monitor too. Well, like that, while they're acting, I'd go... <laughs> Wendy's took photographs on the shoot. She's got <laughs> photographs of me mouthing all the characters' lines while I'm watching the screen. Did that give you the sense that maybe Jeremy wanted that role? No, not at all. <laughs> Tell us about the sport cast. You've got terrific performances all the way across the board there. Mark Colesmith, I've seen him before, and he's a really good actor. Emma, I hadn't seen before, playing Julie. Uh, tell us about how you cast them and how you got those good performances. Um, well, Michael, as we said, was attached five years out. Um, Jackie was always going to play the Doctor. Um, we then, we, we, we created the character of Julie um, about sort of three years before we, we, we amalgamated two characters. We had a bunch of arguments with uh, various development bodies about whether or not we, it was a good idea. Um, but Re Reg and I stuck to it and created that character of Julie from nothing and, and we're very proud of that character. We think she's great. We found Emma Hamilton because in this country, if you're making a movie, despite the fact that most of the people you're working with want to go and work in Europe and America, we can't bring people out here to act in our films. Um, it's a bone of contention with those of us who are equity members and who make films. Um, because, in, in my opinion, our film industry would, be, would benefit greatly from being able to bring people, if I've got an English nurse and I want to cast a famous English person in that role, in my opinion, uh, if the 
cast is principally Australian, I should be able to do that. As it was, we couldn't do that. And so um, Kirsty McGregor, my casting agent, um, we, we auditioned a lot of Australians here who, who were great. But then she found Emma, who hasn't, who's Australian from Melbourne, and was, went to RADA and was cast in The Tudors. And she sent a test, uh, and it was just clearly... Um, Jackie Weaver happened to be with us at the time when the test was sent, and she went, oh, that's her, straight away. And we, so that was clear. Mark Colesmith was in my last film, Beneath Hill 60. His growth as an actor and as a performer has just been off the chart. Um, in fact, those of you that saw Margaret Pomerantz's review of my film last week will know uh, how charismatic he is because that's all Margaret talked about for 10 minutes was just how amazing this young Aboriginal actor is. So um, he actually told me he could play the role and I didn't think he could. I had someone else in mind and he sent me tests and made and self-tests until I considered him and then he came in and worked with Michael and the two of them got on like, like that and that's how he got cast. I can't imagine the film without Mark now. Uh, he comes in and, and there's this, this life, this energy that mm. lights up the screen. Yeah. Uh, it's got a huge future, yeah. a huge future. And Ningali Lawford, for those of you that don't know, is in about 10 Australian iconic films from the 90s. She stopped acting uh, sort of 10 years ago and brought her kids up and she teaches up in Kalbarri and Fitzroy Crossing. And she's you know, a full, full blood, um, you know, Northwestern Australian Aboriginal woman who'd kind of given up acting, but she was in Australia and Blackfellas and, and Rabbit Proof Fence. And she's an amazing actor, like a truly a force of nature. You know, anyone that knows Ningali understood perfectly when I said, oh, I've cast her as Polly, they go, oh yeah, good thinking. Um, and she's fantastic, and this will lead to her hopefully... Um, well, she's back in the game now, which is great. She's just done Secret River, um, the telly movie, and, uh, and she's working again, which is great for Australia because she's a world-class actress. She's terrific, I agree, yeah. What sort of budget did you have, and how did you raise it? Uh, $4 million. Uh, we originally budgeted it at seven, and then we got it down to 5.7. Um, we were in talks with Screen Australia and all the other people, but for those of you that don't know, when you make a film in this country, um, even with the help and the goodwill of Screen Australia and your local screen bodies, you still need to find between 25 and 35% of your budget privately. That means on a $4 million film, you've got to find a million dollars, at least. And that money has to be proper money. Um, it can't, you know, a lot of people kind of cobble it together with in-kind deals and stuff. But most people find investors, and that's a very, very, very hard thing to do because you have to be honest with them and say you almost certainly are not going to get your money back. Are you still interested? And that most conversations finish at that point, and then you move on. Um, but it took Greg and I, you know, three years. We have an incredible group of investors on this film who believe in the film and they believe in the message of the film. And so it's not. It's. I mean, they own the film with us, so it's not. It's not charity. But they're aware that the chances of getting it back are slim and they, and they invested in this because they want to see a, a beautiful film made. So, yeah, we raised four million bucks, Screen Australia, Screen New South Wales, Screen South Australia, Screen Territory and private investment, plus the producer's offsite, offset. And those private investors were individuals or companies? Oh, well, they're all, they're all high-wealth individuals that can afford it. You don't want anybody mortgaging their house to, to help you with a film. Um, they're all people that dabble in investment in film and have done for a long time. They're very experienced. Um, they gave us great advice in terms of s structuring um, 
how we put our finance together, and they've been with us through the whole ride. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a group of them, and at this point in my career, the hope is that you get your money back and you can take the check round and and actually you know give it to them, and hopefully they give it back to you and I can go and make another film. Now, uh, Last Cab to Darwin feels to me a, a film that's in the tradition of a Kenny or a Red Dog, a film that's got a kind of a real particular colour and a version of Australia that's a lot of charm. Do you think of it as a film that might work overseas? Does that play into your mind as you make it? Yeah, it's 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 written to ha it's written and produced to have broad appeal. You know, I've, I've made a little indie film and I've made a war film for a niche market, and I wanted to make a film. We felt Reg and I very strongly that this could be a film that could play broadly and still do all the things that we wanted it to do. And and the aim is to have artistic integrity and entertain people. It's a film business. Uh, it's it's a. Uh, it's about making films that are, are well-structured and respect an audience and, and, and seek to entertain them. And I think very often we forget that last word, that entertainment. In, and, and filmmaking can become about going to festivals and telling people how incredibly you know, beautifully shot and important this film is, but it doesn't actually entertain people. The best films, of course, do both. So yeah, we want it to travel, and it will travel, um, but what we'd like first is it to really find a place in Australia and become a film that people... I mean, Icon are releasing it pretty wide. We're very lucky. There's not many Australian films released as wide as we will be released, so when's there's it, a chance for everyone to see it. When's it released? Uh, August the 6th. Okay. Do you ever know, Michael, that the films you're in are going to be successful or not? Uh, no, it's sort of, you get nervous these days because of, you know, um, people haven't been, in the main, going to see Australian films. Um, but at the same time, I, I think sort of we've probably got a, a demographic with this because, uh, you know, maybe some teens, etc., will come and see the movie, but I, I think it's for the more mature and uh, they tend to go to the movies a lot more. And I think they, the, the demographic's called 45 to dead. Yes. Or 45 considering, to considering death, maybe. <laughs> uh, so um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, other projects you've been involved in recently, Michael? Have you got other films Not a out? lot, mate. There's been a drought since Rafters. That's... Um, I've been doing uh, work in commercials, etc. I mean, I've been earning a living, but I haven't been practicing my craft. So that is the only job I've had since finishing Pack to the Rafters. Well, that's clearly a waste. So anybody out there making something or considering writing something, there's, uh, there's a talent here. Jeremy, have you got other things you're doing at the moment? Uh, in, in my position, you have to. Ha I've got lots of things that are, are half-baked. Um, I would love to have something that's fully ready to go and I always tell myself that I will when I finish. Next time I do a project, I'll have something ready, but of course I don't, again. Um, you have to, I make a living acting, doing voiceovers, producing, script editing, you name it. Um, the only way you can survive in this industry as an independent producer, an independent storyteller, is to do lots of, have lots of different ways to make a living. So, um, yeah, I, I, I sit in my office and I'm, I've got two projects I'm working on at the moment, both feature films. I guess you've mentioned some of the things you hope happens when the film comes out. Do you want to sort of tell us a bit more about how you'd like to affect your audience? Uh, clearly there are some emotional issues, there are some issues for discussion that you want to affect. Any kind of feeling about how you'd like them to react? 
If I had to categorise my worldview and the worldview of the people that make the film, it's, it's really pretty simple. In Australia, I, I, would, I would love us to be able to debate issues with more heart than we do, um, to find a way that we can look at the world in, in a less adversarial manner. And that's what I find the most disappointing in politics and, and in, in the Australian culture, is that we've embraced this adversarial way of looking at the world, which is us against them and which is about blame and about not being ever wrong. Um, and I think we're a better nation when we look at issues like race or issues like euthanasia or the right to die um, or even living in a country town and, and how we deal with our community. Um, I Hopefully people will watch this film and go, you know what, when people are, are care about one another and are interested in one another's stories, then suddenly they, they lead more full lives. And I think as a nation, we're really at a, at a point now where, we, where we're going to go down a path it's hard to get back from soon if we don't incorporate a sense of fairness and a sense of um, justice on all levels in, in Australian culture at the moment. So that's what the film's meant to do. It's meant to say what a lovely people we are and look what happens when we care for one another. It, it is a kind of optimistic film, isn't it? Did you, when you read the script, Michael, did you think, well, this is kind of life-affirming in a way that you want to tell stories? Look, I, I, it took me a while to get to the nitty-gritty of it, actually. I don't, I don't think I was incredibly perceptive, you know, because I, I saw it as this, this journey. And then and it pushed my idea of reality, you know. My, my first stage manager told me I was too practical to be an actor. And uh, there are aspects of it that... But as I got more and more into it, uh, I appreciated the nuances of it a lot more. I mean, but, it, but it, it took me a little while to fall in love with it. And that was my failing, not the script. It's interesting. Does that suggest that at some point you wanted to change things in it? Did you think about suggesting to Jeremy or Reg that... Well, look, go in a different I, direction. I don't want to ruin it here for, for the people who haven't seen it, so I, I, I can't go into detail. But yeah, there's parts about uh, the last part of the film um, that did worry me. But seeing the, the finished product and, and people's reaction to it, Jeremy was dead right. I was wrong. You know, and Jeremy sort of uh, is pedantic, but for a reason. He's got a very good brain. Good. Uh, one last question for me, then we'll take some questions from the audience there. Uh, one thing I really liked about it was the sense of knockabout mateship in the town. Uh, his friends in the pub, uh, the way the barmaid says when the phone rings, who's on their way home already. <laughs> Just the sense of that. Tell us about the origin of those kind of elements of the story. Oh, Reg and I are Australian men. Um, we grew up in Perth. Um, we've both worked in working-class places and both been in a lot of pubs. And Australian mateship, in inverted commas, is something that Reg, particularly more than me, is fascinated by. Um, by the, there's a double-edged sword to Australian mateship, which I'm sure we're all aware of. There's the wake and fright part of it, which is, which is this sort of terrifying um, way of making, you know, keeping people 
controlled, um, which is very obvious and threatening in a male and aggressive kind of way. But there's a more subtle version of mateship as well, which isn't very helpful, um, which is that when things go wrong in, in men's lives, quite often they will, they will say, don't worry, mate, she'll be right. At times when it would be great to say, you know what, it's not going to be right and we're here for you and this is how we propose you get through it. Um, and if those of you that have seen the film, when you tell someone you're dying of cancer and they say, you're not fucking dying, you're sitting here having a beer with your mates, that's not helpful. Um, so we were really interested and always have been in, in this thing that people, uh, that, you know, the jingoistic side of politics talks about, you know, the fair go and, and, this, and the Australian mateship thing and the Anzac spirit. And I just think we turn these ideas into ridiculous, simplistic, jingoistic codswallop. And the reality is far more nuanced. And that those guys in the pub, for instance, Rex's mates, they have a lesson to learn on what mateship is during the course of the film. And it involves being nice to his next door neighbour who he loves. And suddenly they go, oh, okay, we're not mates and that's his misses, we're, we're a community. So that time you spend in the pub is research. Total research and, if, and uh, I, I get a gold star for research. <laughs> okay, we've got some microphones there so just put your hand up and wait till the microphone comes and then we'll uh, take the question. Hi, congratulations on your beautiful film, both of you. Um, the best compliment I can give you comes out of my 63 year old mother's mouth. She said, if I never see another film before I die, I'll die happy. So, congratulations. <laughs> but I have a question too. Well, th thank um, her very much for that. I, I'm a low-budget Australian feature filmmaker and I'm making my first feature at the end of this year. And I oh, just, congratulations. Well, I haven't got there yet, but thank you. Yeah, um, you, you aren't making it yet until you get to press on and it's <laughs> happening. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, that terrifies me what you said before the screening. It took you 15 years to make and... Why did it take you 15 years to make, firstly? And secondly, would you give any advice? What advice would you give to upcoming Australian feature filmmakers? The first thing I'll tell you is that the film before, Beneath Hill 60, which had doubled the budget, a budget of $10 million, I got that up in a year from ground, from, from an idea to, a finish, to, a, to shooting a feature film. So it's not always 15 years. This is a labour of love between Reg and I and, and because it was a play and toured around the country for four years. Um, it's, a, it's a, just a different process. Um, look, my advice on making films is that what I'm discovering is that it, it's, um, it's got to be something like being a painter or being an opera singer or something. It's got to be something you love doing that you're really good at that's going to make you feel good doing it. If you're doing it to get any kind of sense of importance, then really be a, be a lawyer or a stockbroker or something because it's, 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 you don't get a sense of that from making films. It's hard, hard work. Um, and it's not financially, you know, sensible at all. Um, so I would say just do it if you love it. But mind you, the castle was made for... Don't do this, 700,000. Don't do this. And we shot it in ten and a half days. And it was written in about a month. And took $48 million or something <laughs> stupid. Yep. Yeah, there's a lesson in that for all of us. It's an optimistic thing. One up the back there. Uh, just a comment. Um, I do hope it travels, but I'm concerned particularly about the Americans. You might need subtitles. So you're concerned that what? That you might need to subtitle it. 
I might need to subtitle it in America. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Goes without saying. Yeah. Okay, so another question down there. Thanks. Hi. Um, thanks. It was a wonderful film. Um, Jeremy, I'm interested to understand. You, you based it on Max Bell. Um, no, we were inspired by Max inspired Bell's story. By it's Max a Bell. different thing to saying based on the true story of, and we don't yeah, do that in anything. Yeah, that's the part anything. I was a bit thrown by because, I mean, you said earlier in this talk that, and I don't know what happened to Max Bell, but we no. do know what happened to Max Bell. We know that he died using the machine. And you no, know, he, no didn't. he didn't. No, he didn't. He died in Broken Hill in palliative care it, after driving back to Broken Hill. I don't oh, think he right? drove back. I think Nitschke actually he, drove his cab for a yeah, while Nitschke afterwards. Yeah, drove his back and they put him in a plane because he was so sick. He oh, actually okay. died on his own in Broken Hill. The first person to use the euthanasia laws was a guy called Bob Dent and he died holding his wife's hand in Darwin um, with Dr. Nitsky, and he was the, the poster boy for euthanasia in the sense that he lived a full life, he had his family with him, he had his partner with him, and he was spared a horrible, painful death by having an assisted suicide. Okay. Um, so his but, story was a good story. Thank you for explaining that, because I was a bit confused. So, so you don't see the fact that he... I understand the film's life-affirming, but the fact that he chose not to use the machine... You, you weren't trying to give the message that you didn't think assisted suicide was a good idea? No, I wanted to give the message that assisted suicide, it should be, it should be something that is done after consulting and speaking and loving with those that you, that you care about and who care about you. It should never ever be seen as a way out of dealing with the emotional bonds that one creates in one's life. And so we wanted to, to tell the story of someone who needed to it, acknowledge his emotional bonds before he dies. And that's why when he does get to use the machine with Julie in my film, the reason he doesn't use it is not because he suddenly doesn't believe in euthanasia, but because he realises he needs to tell Polly he loves her. And that when he's done that, then he'll be very happy to go. We don't know what happens at the end of the film. There's a great deal of speculation on set as to whether... I wish someone would tell me. No. <laughs> well, because it's now Last Cab Back to Darwin, will be the next film after this one's a hit. So I can tell you he's definitely still breathing. <laughs> okay, another, uh, another question. I've got two questions. Just one, how come you didn't develop the football theme to show any football? That's one question. Um, for the simple reason that the, the film is two hours long, I wanted to. I'm a huge footy fan. My friends from the football team I play in all came up to Darwin and we actually played on that day that we shot the footy stuff. We played for the Saints against the local mob and uh, I played footy and I, I didn't get a single kick or handball. Um, play with a whole bunch of Aboriginal kids. Um, the, the, there's two reasons for that. One is that we, we didn't have time to go into that. And the second one is that Mark Holsmith's an awful football player and, and should have learned more skills than he did before he shot it. The important thing with that story, as I'm sure you'll see, is that his, is that his wife has come to Darwin and that they are going to be a partnership and he's going to look at, take responsibility for his kids. That is the most important part in Mark's story and the fact that he, whether he plays well or indifferently isn't, isn't so important as the fact that she's there and his kids are there. 
See, and my other question is, was that your actual ending that you wanted, or did you have another ending? A, a lot of people said we should shoot two endings. <laughs> um, that's the ending we wanted. What we didn't yeah. know was whether or not Rex dies in that last breath when he says, uh, no pain anymore, no pain. And she says, there goes the sun. Who, who here thought he died at that point? And who, who thought he was going to stay there for a day or two or something with Polly? Yeah, 50-50, roughly. Yeah. So that's great. That's the, that's the answer we wanted. I must, I must say, too, that um, I can't... I'd love to see the uh, director's cut one day. Three and a half hours week, long. Because, and there's football in it. <laughs> because uh, some lovely scenes sort of had to go. And, and it was, and there were some wonderful scenes. There's a, there's a beautiful story. Mark Cole Smith tells a story written by Reg. Um, it's a monologue in the car, and it happens just before Tennant Creek, and it was the last thing to go from the film, because in the end, it was taking away from the pathos of him telling Rex that his wife is tough, and she's the only person that can protect his kids. But he tells the story of of how his um, his dad used to go catching mud crabs up in Darwin. And uh, he and his uncle were catching crabs and they had a bucket full of mud crabs. And his uncle said, hey, we've got to get rid of some. There's too many crabs. They're, they're going to crawl out of the bucket. And his dad says, no, don't worry about that. They're Aboriginal crabs. If one crab tries to get out of the bucket, all the other crabs will just drag him back down again. And, so, and, and then he cries at the end of it because it's true uh, and for some people in, that, in those communities. Um, and that was, a, for us, was what was a big part of the story, but we realised that that was being told without the monologue. And, and, uh, and mind you, that same sort of metaphor applies for white fellas too. A absolutely, yeah, yeah. Very much so, you know. We've learned some things here today. We've learned that the cab fare from Broken Hill to Darwin's $4 million. $4 million. We've learned that uh, a great selling point for your film is if you only see one film before you die, this is it. And you might think about it after yeah, that. Yeah, can we have that? <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, but most of all, we've learnt what charming company both Jeremy and Michael are, and it's been fantastic hearing from them. We wish them all the best for their film. I, I thought it was a terrific film. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I hope a lot of people get to see it when it's released. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Thanks, Gary.